Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. I hope uh, you're excited to be here today. Are you ready? Now, come on. Are you ready? No, come on. Are you ready? All right. All right. Here we go. Uh, in the movie Ford and Ferrari, it came out in like 2019. Uh, if you don't know, it's a, like a historical sports drama, uh, which is based essentially on real events. And it follows the life of two men, Carol Shelby, which is played by Matt Damon, uh, who is a former race car driver, and Henry Ford II, who has in this movie one objective or obsession, if you want to call that, over defeating Ferrari at Le Mans, which is a 24-hour racing event. So the story's plot is driven by uh, Henry Ford's uh, tasking his racing division. How many of you like race car dri- driving, racing? Okay, several of you. Task, I mean, I'm totally a racer, you know, so I totally get this stuff. But tasking his racing division uh, to build a Ford GT40 prototype. Okay? Totally understand what that is. And then he, the reason why is because he wants to defeat Ferrari at the Le Mans race. However, the problem as the story unfolds was that Henry Ford II was running his racing division all wrong. And he was creating unnecessary bureaucracy, which is causing an inferior product to come out. So in one particular scene, which I love, I I watch it over and over, uh, we have, in order to get um, Henry Ford's attention, Carol, the race car driver, invites Henry Ford II to take a ride in his Ford GT40. Okay, so if you don't know anything about Henry Ford II, at this time he was probably one of the most famous men in the world. Uh, he was responsible for building three out of every five bombers in World War II. In fact, it's said that Roosevelt did not win World War II, but Henry Ford II won World War II. So this is a great man, but also an arrogant man. And so Shelby wants to give Henry Ford a ride in the GT40. So the ride lasts about 45 seconds. Now remember, Carol Shelby is a professional race car driver. And in this memorable scene, uh, Ford experienced what it was like to race around a makeshift track, um, racing around 145 miles an hour, barely missing a plane, a truck, and spinning out violently. In fact, as the whole scene unfolds, Ford Uh, increasingly sits back in his seat because because he's terrified of the raw power and the raw speed that he's experiencing in his own car. Have you ever been with a friend that likes to drive cars fast and they say, check this out, and you're like, oh God, no, right? Mark Francie has done this many times to me, and I've hated him for it. But if you know what I'm talking about, you sink back in your chair, you have one arm that's holding on to the seat, and you have the other arm like protecting yourself as if you could protect yourself. This is Henry Ford. He's experiencing the terrifying power of this GT40. So not only does the famous Henry Ford, I'm going to keep this PG, most likely soiled himself as he was driving with Shelby. Uh, When Shelby stops the car, Ford starts, starts to weep uncontrollably. So In this scene for an awkward 10 seconds, one of the greatest men in Western civilization is weeping, crying. And as the scene comes to a close, Ford finally gathers his emotions and says to Shelby, I had no idea. And he repeats it over and over and over. I had no idea what this car could do. I think we all understand what is going on at this point. You see, Henry Ford II had a theoretical understanding of fast cars and racing. However, as he drove in this car, his theory of fast cars became deeply personal. He knew previously, he knew about the GT40, but now after riding in the GT40, he now really knows what it's like to race in this car. So I think... I want to transfer this now to like our modern day cultural moment. I think the American church is in a transition much like Henry Ford II. 
I think I'll say it this way, and I don't want to be too uh, hyperbolic here today, but I do believe the American church is living through a theological crisis. And the theological crisis is not over the influence of progressive liberals or lowbrow conservatives or, or raging materialists or secularism or tribal politics or Netflix has bad TV shows. And we should talk about all of that. Can I get an amen? I'm not saying those things are off limit, but that's not our theological crisis that is raging in the church today. I think our theological crisis and the transition that we have to make is over. We have a a theoretical God that we've become uh, comfortable with being theoretical. I'll say that again. We we have a theoretical God that we've become comfortable with being theoretical. That he's not practical. He's not personal. He's not alive. Thus, we really have no power in our life. In fact, Paul emphasizes this in the Greek and warns uh, many people uh, not to fellowship with those who have a form of godliness, but deny its power. I think essentially he's saying, hey, you, you can't fellowship a long time with people that just live in theory and don't have a personal, deep, living relationship with Jesus. You see, there, there's such a thing as you could come and sing the songs about God's everlasting love. And man, if you've done church history a long time, you can recite the Nicene Creed or all the Christian creeds, right? If, if you're really good and you're a scholar here, it's totally possible that you could like say everything about the Cappadocian fathers and all their takes on the social dimensions of the Trinity. You could talk about how we can anthropopathize the qualities of God. Some of you have no idea what that meant. I'm just trying to make the point. You can talk Christian well But that does not mean that you have a personal living relationship with God. In other words, you can know about God and yet not know God. In fact, there's a lot of information that I know about my all-time favorite athlete, Michael Jordan. Who is the greatest? LeBron can't handle a candle. Steph Curry can't handle a candle. Uh, There is no argument here. If you have an argument, the devil is a liar. MJ is the greatest. To ever play the game of basketball. Thank you. And I can tell you all the information about Michael Jordan. I've I've listened to all the biopics. I know what happened to him in high school. I know how he went to North Carolina. I know how he was passed over by the Portland Trailblazers and then he went to Chicago Bulls. I kind of can trace his history as an athlete. I know a lot about Michael Jordan, but I don't know him. I don't have a deep relationship with him that is transformative. And this is what we call the gap. This is what Henry Ford had, was the gap. This is what many of us have in our lives. And what I'm about to say, I'm going to say with all respect and no judgment and no shame, but I think many of us are living inferior lives because we're unable to negotiate the gap between what we know about God and what we believe about God and what we trust about God. And living up to what we know and believe and trusting about God in our day-to-day lives. For example, we can sing songs about the everlasting love of God and then struggle mightily in the week with chronic inadequacy in our relationships and in our place of work. Right? Many of us here, like you're saying, I believe what that song is saying, and I'm kind of believing in what the preacher's preaching right now, and I believe that God is good. And yet my life, for some reason, just does not live up to that. What do we call that? We call that a a gap. Like many of us, and we can feel this, right? It's not just one or two people in here that have experienced this. Everyone in this room, we all have experienced this gap in our life. Failing to live up to what we really believe about God. Like we could be thankful for God's grace and then fall back into a sin pattern over and over and over. And then we project this portrait of God as being absolutely angry and disappointed with us. Some of us, we can declare our allegiance on a Sunday or maybe we go up to a camp or a retreat and our lives are overwhelmed with God's goodness. And we just, we declare that Jesus is king. And then throughout the week, we place our security outside of God, in ourself, in money, in power, and I could go on and on and on. Gaps. That's the theological crisis of the church. We have a gap between what we know about God and our lived experience 
with God. Could you imagine if the American church had a move of God where we were no longer satisfied with just knowing some things about God, but entering into an alive, interactive, conversational, breathtaking relationship with the living God who has a plan for you, who has a good purpose for your life and wants to take all the mess, all the tragic things that you've gone through, turn it around and make it good. We prayed this this morning, and, and one of our prayer leaders prayed this, Psalm 139. It tells us that our Creator has knit us together in our mother's womb. We know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Some of us more fearfully than wonderfully. Okay, let's move on. Right? I'm the fearfully kind of person, right? And yet, we believe that. We read that Psalm. And we meditate on it. And yet, how many of us still struggle with our body image? How many of us still struggle with comparing our lives with someone else? We endlessly compare ourselves with all the other people that it just seems like they just everything in life just works out for them, right? And yet we believe in Psalm 139. So what, what's the point? What's, how do we, Chris, negotiate this gap? How do we go from Henry Ford II before the car drive to Henry Ford II after the car drive? How do we move into this, this living relationship with the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible has a word for it. It's called Yada. Everyone say Yada. Go ahead, say it one more time. Yada. Yada simply means to know. And to know is not, as the Bible describes it, is not theoretical. Knowledge, or this biblical yada, is not merely intellectual. It is personal and it is practical. In fact, the Bible tells us that Adam knew his wife Eve. So what the Bible is telling us is not that Adam took a health class and figured out the birds and the bees. Are you hearing me? To know here is a euphemism for sexual intimacy. So yadah involves your entire or your whole person in a deeply personal way. I remember when I was four years old, my dad told me that the stove was, was still hot. I didn't believe him. I had at that point an abstract knowledge of fire and that it hurt and that there was pain associated with it. But I remember, I, because I didn't believe my father, I made a quick decision as a four-year-old because I knew everything, right? And I went over to the stove when my father wasn't looking, and I put my hand on the stove and touched it, and I had a yada moment. <laughs> so my theoretical understanding of hand on fire became real. And it changed my life. I've never touched a stove again. Yada is personal. It's not just theoretical. And we have in, 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 replete through the prophetic writings, the constant accusation is that God's people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. Yada. Equally and more positively, we also are told that God's people become strong and do exploits because they yada or know God. So here's the thing. To know God or to not know God in the biblical sense is everything. It's everything. In fact, knowing God, not in a theoretical sense, but in a personal sense, is the rock-solid foundation for flourishing, for becoming uh, an emotionally mature follower of Jesus. How many of you want to become more like that? How many, in, in, in a moment of honesty, were not like that this week? Okay, only four of you raised your hand. I'm raising my hand. Okay, come on, somebody. Like, it's this personal knowledge uh, which becomes the rock-solid foundation of human flourishing, of becoming an emotionally mature follower of Jesus. It's, it's how God rewires uh, the, the neural pathways of our brain. It's how God transforms our thinking, our, our living, our longings, our acting, the way we live. It is yada. It is a personal understanding of who God is. And that's what I want for you in this next season. And at the end of this message, I'm going to pray that over every person in this room that you would not just know about God, but you would actually yes. know him, yes. that you would experience his breathtaking love that would reorient, reorientate your entire way of life. Amen. So here I must pause and I want to take a step back. And the thing that we have to 
ask, or the question that we have to ask is, where's our starting point for knowing God? Yada. Where do we start? Well, I'm not going to be redundant because I talk about this often, but to really know God, we have to start not with our subjective feelings. We can't start with our um, tragic situations that we've gone through. We can't take our experiences and project that and draw portraits of God, right? We always have to start with God's self-disclosure of himself. In other words, our starting point, the foundation for really knowing God, not in theory, but in a personal deep way, is really beginning to know who God is. A.W. Tozer said this, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, he's saying our portrait that we draw in our minds, which is deeply embedded in our subconscious, is the most important thing about you. It's not your sexuality. It's not even the color of your skin. All of those things we will talk about. It's not, I could go down the list. It's not your identity marker. It's not this and that. It's not that, oh, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm a Libertarian or I'm a Marxist or whatever, your political affiliation. The most important thing about you is how you think about God. And I believe in first things. Everyone say first things. I believe in the words of C.S. Lewis that Man, if you put first things first, you will get both first, second, third, fourth, and fifth things. But if you take third things in importance or fourth things important and make them first things, you will lose both first and second and third and fourth and fifth things. For example, some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about, right? For example, I have taught my kids how to a button, um, a button t-shirt or not a t-shirt, but a shirt, right? You always have to start with the top, right? You start with the top. And we start with the top, everything just lines up as you button your shirt. Problem for a while is my kids were but starting to button their shirt from the middle. And guess what happens? One part of your shirt's down here and the other part is up here and you look like Frankenstein. <laughs> right? That's the important thing. If we get first things first, everything falls into line. So what you think about God is significant. It shapes, guys, it shapes how you live in your marriage. It shapes how you raise your children. It shapes, and I, I believe in techniques. I believe we need to talk about things that are related to marriage and family and raising our kids. All of those things are important, but if you do not have this foundation of knowing God, I don't care if you have the best thinking technique to make your kids do what you want them to do, right? You lose them if you do not have a personal relationship with the living God. Can I get an amen to that? So it's so important that we begin with this knowledge. And the reason why this is so important is because in recent Pew Research, 90% of Americans believe in God, but only 56% believe in God as described in the Bible. So people believe God is, I mean, I've heard it many times, God's not a Republican. Well, yeah, of course, right? God's in an altogether different category, right? I've heard some people say God's not a Democrat. Of course, right? I've also heard that God's a she, a he, a they, a them, uh, some cosmic anonymous uh, space force. Like God somehow is the sum total of the creative forces of moral goodness in the universe. I mean, I've heard so many things online and through articles and research. We, ne- we have a nearly infinite a nearly infinite range of understanding and speaking about God in our pluralized society. So I think it's important that we begin, if we really want to yada God, we have to begin with knowing who he is. So we come to Exodus 33. Moses goes up the mountain, the fiery mountain summit. Moses asks God to show him his glory. He's the first Pentecostal, right? Not a good joke? Okay, (laughs) Moses asked God to show him his glory. And what does glory mean? Glory means essentially someone's weight or the essence of who they are, their characters. One pastor scholar says it's God's resume. This is who God is. And so Moses asked God to show him 
his glory. Then we move into, as we read earlier, to Exodus chapter 34. And uh, I've said this many times before, but this passage is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. In fact, as I've chronicled some of my health um, stuff with you over the last two years, uh, the one thing that has kept me from uh, losing my mind as I've gone through some interesting things is I have given my mind and my heart to the Psalter. So I just, I read the Psalms and I read over and over and over. And what I, what I came to realize is that Exodus 34 language is woven into the fabric of the Psalter. When you look at lament and complaint and all the trouble, all the suffering and all the things that people are going through, even in the Thanksgiving, what do they appeal to? The psalmist over and over and over again. They appeal to what we're going to find in Exodus 34 about who God is. So we come to Exodus 34. God introduces himself and the first thing he says is not, I am sovereign, right? He doesn't say, Moses, check out how almighty I am. He doesn't say that I'm absolutely unqualified or in a, in a completely different category and you're unqualified to be in my presence. God doesn't begin with all the omnis. God simply reveals, as my wife points out over and over and over, his goodness to Moses. And this is how God reveals himself. This, guys, is our starting point. Please hear me. This is our starting point. This is what we need to live from. This is what we need to inhale. This is what we need to breathe into. We need to allow God to reshape our thinking, our, how our perspective, our attitudes, our values, our allegiance around this revelation of who God is. Verse 6, God introduces himself as the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh, I, I love this. Yahweh, Yahweh. He does not reveal himself as some anonymous cosmic space thing. Thank you, Christy. He reveals himself and introduces himself as personal. He says, I have a name. It's Yahweh. Not only that, I want to relate. To you. I want to be in relationship with you. You see, the, the problem that I had, because I was a PK, grow, growing up in church, I had, a, I had great parents, great church, great friends. One of the difficulties for me in my relationship with God is that I spatialized him. I thought that God was distant and somewhat impersonal. In our secular world, we call this deism, right? That God is somewhere out there uh, as a, an anonymous uh, space kind of cosmic substance really doesn't care about us. That was how I kind of felt about God. And I think many of us, if, if, if we're re really honest, would say with a show of hands, yeah, maybe you've experienced this in your own life. Okay, let's do it. How many of you would say, yeah, Chris, I think I've struggled with thinking about God in that kind of spatialized way. He's way off and he's not that personal. Okay, thank you. About a third of you, maybe even more than a third of you, right? And yet God reveals himself as, guys, I have a name. I know you. I want to bless you. I see you. That we live in a communicating cosmos that God wants to communicate to your heart and your mind. Guys, I'm whispering. I don't know why, but God has a voice. He's conscious. He's fully aware of everything. God is at work right now in our world and God is at work in minds and hearts as I speak his word over us. The Lord, the Lord, he is personal. He has a name. He wants to relate and you are made in his image. And then God moves into, as we go through this quickly, I don't have enough time to fully explicate uh, the nature of God, but God declares to Moses that he is compassionate. What does that mean? He's merciful, depending on what translation you read. What does that mean? It means that, that God cares deeply for you. He cares deeply for how you feel. Are you hearing me? Compassion, as I said this ad nauseum, comes from the Hebrew uh, root word, which means wombish. That simply describes how a mother feels for her children. How many moms do we have here? 
How many of you feel what your children are feeling every single day, right? It's your thing, right? We all, yeah, as a mom, even dads, I mean, we, we feel what our children are going through. And I've shared this story so many times before. I'm going to make this short. I remember I was a senior, junior in high school. We were playing basketball in eastern Idaho. And uh, I had a really rough game, got fouled out in the third quarter. And uh, I, I'm a redhead, so I have a temper. So I was arguing with the ref, uh, almost got in a fight with some other, uh, not my teammates, but the other um, team. And the whole crowd, it was a packed out place. We're the number one team in the state. I was the greatest athlete ever. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> the old glory days. I, I like to do that. Um, and so my coach has to come and grab me, takes me off the court. The whole crowd is jeering at me, throwing stuff at me. Um, my, my mom's in the, in the stands. And again, some of you have heard the story, but tell like you haven't heard the story before. But a woman starts jeering and saying stuff about me, like this kid. I mean, he's a bad kid, rotten apple. Of course, he's a redhead, all that kind of stuff. My mom had enough. She stands up, looks over to this woman and says, hey, that is my son out there. And you are going to stop talking about my son. And if you don't stop talking about my son... We can go outside and deal with this. That is what a mom does. That is, the, that is the fruit of compassion. Compassion you feel for your kids. My mom was going to fight 1,500 people. She was willing to kill for her son. Right? Guys, this is how God is with you. Some of you don't believe me. I know it. That's fine. You've been catechized by our culture. Or maybe you've allowed certain circumstances to shape your perspective, your attitudes about God. But God is the one who cares deeply for you, your person, your mind, your body, your destiny, your work, your kids, your money, all of it. God cares for your whole person. And then God declares to Moses that he's gracious. Everyone say gracious. I can get into this word, but I can't do it today because we just don't have enough time. But gracious simply means, guys, God wants to help you. God's your helper. As Shane even mentioned earlier, God wants to help you out of your weariness. God wants to bring you out of the desert of your dissatisfaction. Some of you are overwhelmed and tired in life and You're bankrupt emotionally, and you don't know what to do. Hey, I got good news for you. God wants to help you out of the pit of despair. And he wants to bring wholeness to your life. Guys, I don't know why I'm whispering, but I'm just, ah. Please hear me. God is your helper. And as your helper, he wants to heal you. And healing is not just psychomatic. It's not just like your psychological being trying to figure out um, how to bring healing into the material of your body. No, God actually wants to heal your physical body. God wants to heal brains here today. God wants to heal the neural pathways in your brain that have been damaged by trauma. God is here to help every son and daughter in this room. And then God declares to Moses, I am slow to anger. The Hebrew word is long nose. Anybody have a big nose here? Okay, no? Do you, you raise your hand? All right. You weren't supposed to raise your hand. That was just a you know, trick question. Long nose. What does that mean? Well, if, if you're a parent of a lot of kids, you know what it's like to get angry, right? Not crazy angry, but a little angry, righteously. And what usually happens in my wife is that her nostrils flare. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> happens in me when you get angry. Come on. You've seen it before. Nostrils flare. I love how pictorial the Hebrew language is, right? To be slow to anger is to be long-nosed. What what is God saying about himself? You're going to have to really work hard at making him mad. You're going to have to work at it. Like, you, you can make God mad, but it takes a long time. In fact... This is, all, this is what we call patience. In fact, we, we, we know that God is patient with certain nations for 400 years. In fact, God is patient with some promises over his people for 700 years. God, some of you, you fall back into these sin patterns. And yes, God wants, it is always meets you where you're at. Can I get an amen? 
God in his grace comes and helps you. And he's never going to leave you in your dysfunction and in your stress and in the pain of your life. But when God comes, he does not come with anger first. He comes with compassion and grace because God is your helper. In fact, God can hold on to anger without it ruining him and corrupting him. In fact, Psalm 30 says that God's love is everlasting. His anger is but for a moment. God's love, please hear me, is infinite. God's anger is but for a moment. Can I get an amen? Now let's, okay, let's be honest. How many of you struggled with, okay, Chris, I have failed to live up to what I believe is true. There are some gaps in my life. And when I fail to live up, the first picture that I have in my head is a God who is angry, disappointed, rolling his eyes, doing whatever angry people do. How many of you have experienced that? Yeah, many of you. In fact, if you were to talk to people outside of the church and in our culture, that's probably the dominant way of understanding God. God is a megalomaniacal creature who is bent on destroying you and the universe. He's Thanos, right? He wants to destroy everything. He's crazy. But then God declares, as he continues to reveal himself to Moses, are you guys still with me? He says, I am faithful. I am faithful. I am abounding in steadfast love. What does that mean? Well, uh, the Hebrew word is said, and uh, steadfast love simply means that God is faithful to his promises and to his people. God serves his people. Some of you need to hear this today. God never fails. He never fails. He speaks something over you. Now, some of you, if you've grown up in a charismatic church, you hear this all the time. And if you're not careful, you become so familiar with that language. You start rolling your eyes whenever a preacher gets up and says it because you're going through trauma and situations. And you're trying to figure out how God is going to get you out of what you're going through. But here's the thing. The problem with a lot of people, and I say this with much respect, is that we, in the middle of our our trauma and our difficulties, if we're not careful, we back out and we forget God and we leave the church because we're not willing to allow God to write our entire story. Because if you're willing to allow God to write your entire story, he will take every mess, every failure, every tragic circumstance of your life. And I promise his final word over you is I'm going to take all the evil and I'm going to make it good. That's what he says over us. So steadfast love means he's faithful to his promises and to his people. God serves his people. And then he says that he's abounding in faithfulness or amet, which simply means that God is trustworthy. That God is abounding in steadfast love and and faithfulness to a thousand generations. So God is trustworthy and God is faithful to his promises. This is a hendiadis, which simply means you take two words and those two words form a bigger concept. So when you see abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, what God is trying to say is my faithfulness and my trustworthiness is so much bigger than you can comprehend. And guys, check this out. Steadfast love and faithfulness extends to a thousand generations. Think about that. Thousand generations. As I close here, God also says to Moses in his self disclosure that he forgives those who transgress against him, the guilty, the rebellious. Basically, this means that God's desire is to forgive. The question is, do we really want that? God desires to forgive all the time, but do we want his forgiveness in our lives? Do we want it? And then he says, uh, as we close here, but who will, as he's talking about himself, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What does that mean? Well, it means God is the one who will forgive us of our sins and failures because he's a compassionate God. He's full of steadfast love. But God is also just. Can I get any man to that? God is just. He's not going to let historical evil to run rampant. He's going to put restrictions on it. He's not going to let tyranny and the ways in which we spoil our lives to run amok. God's sovereign. Can I get an amen, church? 
God oversees this creation project. He oversees your life and your soul and your future and your destiny, right? And so he allows sometimes things to happen. He restricts some things. He will never let evil do its worst. Actually, he did. He allowed it one time, and that was with his son Jesus on the cross for you and I and our sake. But ultimately, God is in charge, and he is a just God. So the question is, who are the guilty that God will not clear? Well, the guilty are those who refuse to receive God's grace. Those are the guilty. You see, God wants to love. God wants to forgive. God wants to offer his compassion and his grace to his sons and daughters. And then we continue in a controversial, and I have time to, to talk about this today, but in a controversial passage in the self-disclosure of God, God says to Moses, and I will come and visit the iniquity of the fathers to the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what is God saying here? Who are the fathers? Well, the fathers of those, again, are the guilty. And who are the guilty? Those who refuse God's grace. God will come to you over and 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 speak his love and his goodness and his mercy over you. The fathers who are guilty are those who refuse God's loving response. What happens, it's pretty clear that sin has consequences that go down to the children, right? That there's a generational line to sin. Now, before I continue with that, I just want to provide context here. Remember, God's mercy is infinitely larger than God's judgment. God's mercy is extended to who? to all people who do not refuse or who welcome God's grace for a thousand generations. God's judgment is limited, what, to the third and fourth generation. Think about that. Thousand generations, three and four generations. Since consequences, yes, go to the children. And essentially what God is saying here is yes, there, there's something, and I think examples that we can use. People make bad decisions. Right? We have fetal alcohol syndrome effect affects uh, babies, right? We, we have parents who get arrested, um, and that happens, and it affects the children, and the children are harmed in that. Sin does have consequences. The good news is, though, and I want to encourage everyone, that you can break any generational stuff in your family line. So yes, God will visit the iniquity, which simply means that there are, there are consequences that can affect family lines, but you can break it. God, in essence, as we close here, is not a moral monster. He's absolutely good. Not a moral monster. He's absolutely good. Absolutely good. And the question we have to ask is, okay, so who is God talking to? Well, of course, the obvious answer is God in the self-disclosure is talking to Moses. But I, I, I would like to suggest, and I'm going to pray for you here in about two minutes. I'd like to suggest that God is speaking also the golden calf worshipers. You think about this, right? The whole book of Exodus is fascinating. God comes to, to Moses in, in a fiery bush and then God sends Moses to set the people free and God sets the people free and they go through the Red Sea and um, they're, they're free they're, they're free from Pharaoh and captivity and God then leads them to a mountain Exodus chapter 19 God's excited because he said I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests and kings and I'm going to bless the world through you in fact this is a turning point in human history the world the universe as we know it is going to be transformed because this kingdom is now going to be formed by my love then we come to Exodus 20. We kind of have a, a covenant ritual that happens. And we have a couple, again, the drama is deep and I can't get into it. A couple chapters that go by. We come to Exodus 30 and God's people rebel against God by building a, col a golden calf. This is, this is infidelity. Essentially, they're saying, God, you're not enough. We want another God. Basically, they're saying, God, forget you. We're going to do our own thing. And yet God comes down on this fiery mountain summit and says, Moses, I want you to communicate this to golden calf worshipers. I am compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in Hesed and Amet. And I want to forgive them of their sin and their failure. 
This is who God is. This is the starting point for knowing God in a deep and personal way. You see, you and I fail all the time, but God doesn't. If you were to look at the features or the characteristics described of God in Exodus 34, he is compassionate, he is gracious, he's slow to anger, he's faithful, and he's trustworthy. Could you say you bat a thousand in all of those? No, come on. We're all failures. And so this is where I'm going to land this, this plane. So as we start with this knowledge of who God is, we're not going to start with the omnis, like he's omnipresent and he's omniscient and all those, and that's all true. We're not going to start with our experiences, our subjective feelings. We're going to start with this revelation of who God, this is who God is, guys. This is who he is. So we start there. And as we start there, this leads us to something else, which I think is really important. If we want to live out this deep relationship with the Holy Spirit and navigate or negotiate the gap or close the gaps in our life. And it's this. We also, as we begin to know God, we have to start with this realization of our absolute spiritual poverty. The American church doesn't like talking about this. We like messages that hype us up and I like hype messages. How many like hype messages? I like them. How many like to feel good every now and then? I bring those a lot, I hope. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, you don't. Okay, anyways, I like, come on, hype is great, but if we're not careful, the message gets lost in another message of, well, we're going to just preach that God wants to make you the best version of yourself. And ultimately, that's not God's plan for your life. Because the best version of yourself is not that good. No? Yeah? I know we use a lot of therapeutic talk and we talk about self-actualization, but your goal in life is not self-actualization. The goal of life is a self-giving life shaped by a loving God who's taken you broken, busted, and disgusted and put your life back together for his glory. And as his now renewed image bearer, you start reflecting that into your family and into the world that you live. So we first have to start, and this is so freeing for me, guys. This week was a really bad week for me. I failed a lot. Guys, I have seven children, so don't judge me, okay? But realizing our absolute spiritual poverty is absolutely essential to knowing who God is. Realizing that we're perfectly unwhole. That God doesn't have gaps, but we have gaps. But we can't stay there. We got to start there. But we also have to know, as I close, that God is also, also, when we come to know him, that in spite of all of us, all of our failures, all of our sin patterns, all of our generational stuff, all of our stubbornness, all of our ups and downs, all of the ways in which we hurt people or have been hurt by other people or the ways in which we find security outside of God, God still meets us, not with anger, but with compassion and grace. And he's slow to anger. He meets us with his steadfast love. He meets us with his faithfulness. He's a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He loves you with an everlasting love. He wants to take your life, put it all together. But Chris, you don't understand. I go five steps forward and then I go like 25 miles back. Can God still love me? Absolutely, yes. Chris, you don't understand what I did last night downtown. I'm sure I can imagine what you did, and I don't want to imagine what you did. But can God forgive sins and the ways in which we spoil our lives and our relationships? Absolutely yes. The question is, do you think God desires to do that? Come on, somebody. Yes. It is God's intent it is desire, it's his desire to meet us where we're at with grace and love and to transform our entire life, to bring us out of the pit of despair, put our lives back together and call us on mission 
to the world. That is the God we serve. So we start with spiritual poverty. God, I'm a failure. I get it. I messed up. I don't, ah, there's gaps in my life. And then you move into the revelation of God. But God, I know that you are gracious. And that you're, you're a God who wants to help. You're a God who wants to heal. You're a God who wants to be with me. That is where we start. If we start there, that's when we close the gaps. And when we close the gaps, that's when the church comes back. And when the church comes back, that's when we see a move of God in our world. And when we see a move of God in our world, all the craziness, come on somebody, becomes a little less uncrazy, right? Right, what the world needs is not just us preaching at them. What the world needs is a people called by God who knows him in a deep and personal way. That is where the authority of power is. Can I pray for you this morning? Father, I thank you for your grace. I'm gonna pray the prayer of Moses over us. In this next season, our desire as a community is for you, Holy Spirit, to show us your glory. That's what I ask. You would show us your presence. You would show us who you are. That we would breathe in your goodness. That we would inhale your love. That your love would become the dominant reality of our lives. Father, that we would go from theoretical knowledge into a deep personal knowledge and living and, and acting out of this alive, breathtaking relationship with you. If that is something that you want, you want to enter a new season where God is showing his glory to you, which again is the most important thing. You want his presence. You want to, you want to hear his voice. And this is something you want. Just take your hand and put it in your heart. I want to pray for you. Father, I thank you for every son and daughter here that you would do that. I thank you that as you answered Moses, you showed him all of your goodness. I thank you that you would show your goodness to your people, that we would, in this season, move from theory to the personal. We would move from the intellectual and just singing some really good songs into a real, lived, practical partnership with you, King Jesus. And Father, I thank you that you would come and bring comfort and strength to every person in this room. As your eyes are closed, your heads are about, I, I want to pray this over you. Is, if you struggle with that angry God portrait, and you fall back into sin patterns, and you're just like, I, I want to break this sin pattern in my life, or I want to break this generational stuff that's in my family line, and I just feel like I, I get free, but then I, then I become unfree, and I'm just like this up and down kind of way of life, and you want the Holy Spirit to come and do a fresh work in you, and yet you also have this portrait of God who is angry at you all the time. I'm going to pray that today God will set you free from that. If you want to be set free and you want God to redraw the portrait that you have of him, could you just raise your hand right now? Anyone like that? Okay. See all those hands all over. Thank you. Put your hands down. If you raise your hand, take your hand, put it in your heart. I'm going to pray for you. Father, I lift up every person, every son and daughter who raised their hand. I thank you right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are redrawing every mental way or understanding of seeing you. Lord, I thank you that you're renewing our minds today. I thank you that we're no longer going to be conformed to tragic misconceptions of you, but we're going to be conformed to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I thank you for a fresh outpouring of your spirit. I thank you again for the transformation of our mind and our thinking. I thank you that we would inhale today who you are and that would launch us into a season of knowing you and living out that relationship to a watching world in Jesus' mighty name. With every eye, every, every eye closed, every head bowed, one last thing, you guys are great. I want to pray for one group. We got to go. You say, Chris, I want to know this Jesus. I want to know his love. I want to move from theory about some cosmic deity. I want to move into this personal, deep relationship with the living God. I want to surrender my life 
to him with every eye closed. If you want me to pray for you and you simply want to open up your heart to Jesus today, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand and I'm going to pray for you. One, two, three. Anyone like that? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. I think sixteen hands are raised. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. All right. As we close, if you raise your hand, take your hand, put it on your heart. Church would also like you to do the same thing. Take your hand, put it on your heart. I want everyone to repeat this after me. Dear Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I thank you that you gave your life on a cross for me. I thank you that you would create out of my chaos just a brand new start. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for your healing. My desire is to know you. So please show me your glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Was that all right today? Can you give God a hand? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.